podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm John. We are pumped. This is one of the best episodes we've ever had. We're putting together for you. Huge guest. It was a thrill to have him on the show. And a, uh, a personal favorite of mine. I've read all of his books. I love this genre in general, which is like the self-help meets interesting non-fiction. I don't know what you would call Slash it. business. Yeah. Well, obviously throw in some stuff that matters. Yeah. And then he touches on sales. So this week we talked to Dan Pink. Dan Pink, probably best known for his book, Drive. However, his newest book, To Sell is Human, is pretty impressive. And if you are in any direct sales or think you are, or if you're not, that's the genius of it. I was just going to say, every day of your life is a sale. Yeah. Everybody's involved in sales. What are you trying to sell? Myself. No, to people in general, when you look at trying to get a job or when you're trying to date somebody, all those things, you're constantly selling. No, I agree. And that's kind of what he goes over in this book. It's a, it's a great interview, but thanks for joining us. Make sure you check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Got some things going on over there. Some things in the works that John and I have. Uh, sign up for the newsletter or just email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We'll reach out to you. What else you got for him, John? Again, if you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. Ah, subscribe. That's a big thing for us. Don't miss an episode. Why would you want to miss an episode? Why would you want to sit there? I mean, we have Dan Pink on. Yeah. Why would you want to go every week and be like, oh, I got to click this button? That's true. Just click subscribe and never worry about it again. What did that guy used to say? Set it and and forget forget it. it. Is it weird that I listen to myself on my commutes? That is kind of weird. I just like the show. Still weird. All right. So uh, we're going to get to Dan. For those of you that don't know, he's the author of five best-selling books. He's written five. They've all been bestsellers. That's pretty impressive. Like I mentioned, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, I think put him on the map. He says in the interview, A Whole New Mind was one that kind of brought him to the world. And his most recent one like, was instantly a bestseller, To Sell as Human. He got his undergrad at Northwestern. He went and got his JD at Yale, but he doesn't like people to know he's a lawyer. (laughs) Smart guy. He actually was the chief speechwriter for Al Gore back in the day, which is pretty cool, until he became author, speaker. His TED Talk is one of the most watched. If you haven't watched Dan Pink TED Talk, check it out. Maybe I'll have Roach put it on our page. What do you think? Yeah, we'll link it to the website. You can see the video there. Again, find that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Don't forget about the awesome Amazon banner up there that gives us a little money here and there and helps us pay for hosting and other stuff. And this awesome board we just bought. Yes, that too. So anyways, we are going to turn it over to Dan Pink. Hope you enjoy. Let us know what you think. I wanted to ask you, you've you've written five books. They're all bestsellers. Are you just an amazing writer or do you know a secret trick that others haven't figured out yet? Well, just to walk back a little bit, I mean, you know, some of them have done better than others. So 
I, you know, I don't want to think that what's going on here at Pinking World Headquarters is a is a hit factory. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I spend a lot of time on my books. Um, I spend a lot of time working on them. I think through, you know, I, I, I actually am pretty careful about what I decide to write about, which is, a, 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 in my view, a really, really important decision for writers uh, of all kinds. And, and it's something that I think that some writers deal with too cavalierly. And, uh, you know, and I also spend a lot of time trying to get the ideas out there that once the book is done and there are words on pages uh, in between covers, you know, that's like the the end of the first inning for me, you right. know, so or maybe the end of the second inning for me. And uh, there's seven more innings to play. So, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time going on talking about the stuff and trying to get the ideas out there. And that actually perfect lead in. The next thing I want to ask you is you have built an amazing brand. I mean, you have a great TED talk that everybody knows about. You give great speaking, you know, engagements and things like that. What was the key behind building this brand? How did you go about doing so? Well, you know, I have to say there's not any I mean, you're very kind to say that, but I have to say there's not any kind of great strategy there. I mean, I I am a I'm a believer myself in a few design principles and these are design principles that feel right to me. I'm not sure whether the efficacy is going to be there for everybody, but the design principles for me are to try to do, you know, to do great work, to be as generous as I possibly can, and also to to do a lot of things. I believe that there is a virtue in in volume too. That the more people I talk to, the more podcasts that I do, the more places that I visit, the more I'm going to learn and the more the ideas are going to get out there. So, you know, some combination of really believing in what I'm doing, coupled with some amount of trying to be as generous as I possibly can, which I think is important. And then also just volume. Sure. No, and that makes sense. And the other thing is, I believe your books have kind of a underlying theme. A lot of them are specifically dealing with people and how people are in general, everyday people, how they react to st certain things, situations. Did you always see yourself writing about, you know, the brain? I mean, you write about motivation and things like that. Did you always have an interest in that? I did to a certain extent. What's interesting is that my path to becoming like a writer on my own was a little bit tortuous. I mean, I didn't, you know, I mean, I went to work for myself when I was 33 years old. Uh, that's when I basically committed to being a writer. And that's, you know, that's later than a lot of people. And, you know, at a certain point in my life, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So it took me a while to kind of find what it, what my sweet spot was, what it is that I did reasonably well, what it is that, you know, made me want to get up in the morning to do cool stuff. And so, you know, I, I think I came, to, I think I came to this a little bit later than a lot of people, which is fine. I mean, that's life. And, if there's one thing that I've been interested in, that, that if there's a unifying thread there, it's it's really the concept of work. I've always been fascinated by work, by what people do at work, why they work, how they work. Even as a little kid, you know, what does it look like from behind the counter at that department store? I was always curious about, you know, what people's parents did for a living. And I I've always found that work is endlessly fascinating topic. I mean, we spend over half of our waking hours at work. And so it becomes this way to look at human beings. What do they care about? What are the hassles in their life? Uh, what's meaningful to them? How do they deal with other people? And so 
I, I'm so not a kind of like big strategic plan kind of guy in anything. But if there's a unifying thread that one could look for taking four steps back, it's going to be the thread. That thread is going to be work. It's actually funny that you mentioned being interesting and seeing, you know, how people work. One of the things that I always thought I was kind of a weird person for thinking was I love looking at people's workspaces, their totally. desktops. <laughs> what does your workspace look like? What is your desk current? What is the current setup? Yeah, for that? but I am so with you. I love looking at people's work workspaces. I mean, it's sort of this weird upset. I mean, so this, this, this that's a, that's a really nice, that's a nice, that's a nice way to look at it. Like if I go to someone's house, like, like uh, do you have a home office? Can I see it? Just <laughs> be curious about it. When I go, when I go to companies, I love walking around and looking at people's cubicles and looking at people's offices. I can't get my family to go around with this, but I, but for me, like an awesome vacation would be to go, you know, drive around and go on a bunch of factory tours. <laughs> That's um, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I can't get the other four people in my family to totally buy into that. Yeah. But um, but so so that's part of my obsession, and and I happen to love it. So okay, so I'll describe my workplace. That's where I'm talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. The 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 beating heart of Pink Ink Enterprises. Yes. Here. All right. So I live in Northwest Washington D.C. and uh, we have a house here in Northwest Washington D.C. Behind that house is an old garage dating from 1922. It's a one car garage back when people had kind of, you know, didn't have like giant Humvees and SUVs. (laughs) And what we have done here is we have converted this garage into my office. So I work out of a converted one car garage, which sort of has kind of a cool entrepreneurial thing going, you know, like Apple garage, garage kind of thing. Um, And but it's been reconfigured into an office where one side of the garage is, has been bumped out, and that's where my desk is. And on my desk, which I'm sitting at right now, you guys, I've got mm-hmm. two computers. I, I work on two computers. One is a MacBook Pro. The other is a is a very fairly large screen uh, iMac. And so I have that desk. It's built right into this kind of bumped out space. I have. I look straight ahead to a big window. On my left is a big window. On my right is a big window. And on and I'm actually. For a guy without a strategic plan, I'm actually a fairly neat desk kind of guy that if you were to look at my desk, it, it's not a total mess at all. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's not kind of obsessively neat, but it's, it's, it's definitely on the neat side, you know, on the, on the neat, messy spectrum. It's definitely much, much closer to the neat side. And what I've got here are, uh, let's see, um, I have a lot of files, but I file those away. And on the desk itself, along with the computers, there's a scanner looking around here. I have a stuffed Charles Darwin doll. <laughs> got to um, have one of those. Every home office. I've got a um, I've got a designer fly swatter uh, <laughs> up there. I've got this thing called a uh, a jam box, which I use for conference calls and for a little bit of music. And I've got uh, a, a totally awesome Washington Nationals batting helmet pencil holder. We're big Nats fans as well. You know what's funny is when we found out you lived in D.C., John said because we live in Arlington. He said, why don't we just send him a car and bring him over? And I said, dude, we work out of our garage. We can't send Dan Pink to our garage. Like, Well, you know what? <laughs> I've had people in my garage and it's actually awesome because I, uh, where, you know, I've been working for myself now for almost 16, coming up on 16 years. And, and for the first decade plus, uh, I worked on the third floor of my house and I could absolutely not have people come into my physical house right. and like go up to the trips up to the third floor. Now I have a door, I have an office, I have some chairs, I got a table. So, you know, I think it's, uh, and I've got a, you know, 20, 23 step commute. Oh man, that's the best. That's where we all want to get to. So I commend you on that. 
I wanted to, to actually jump into, as we were talking about work and you've been fascinated on it, I'm taking a guess that the biggest hit you ever wrote was Drive. Is that a correct assumption, do you think? Uh, actually, um, if, if you want to be quantitative about it, let me think here for a second. Uh, I think that A Whole New Mind has wow. sold more copies than Drive, but it also had a four-year head start. I was going to say it's older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Because um, I feel like most people identify with Drive. And if any book kind of spoke to me the most, it, it was Drive because you say, look, it, money isn't the motivating factor anymore. Like, yes, you have to make enough to live. Yeah. But that's all that it's going to be good for. And I have my life has taken a big turn in the past 10 years, and I'm realizing that. And what you preach is the gospel. So could you just briefly describe kind of what you learned from that book and, and how it came to be? Yeah, I mean, it's actually so. What on that book? What I did is I looked at the social science. I looked at about fifty years of research in behavioral science to get at this question of what really motivates people. And it ends up there's a lot of nuance here. Um, and basically, uh, uh, the big conceptual takeaway of that book is this: that there's a certain kind of motivator that we use in organizations, what I call an if-then motivator, as an if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. And what the research shows very clearly is that if-then motivators, and it doesn't have to be money. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment. That if-then motivators are very effective for uh, short-term, relatively mechanical, algorithmic kinds of tasks, but they don't work very well for things that have a longer time horizon or, or that require more judgment, discernment, creativity. And you know, and, and if you look at what most of us do on the job today, it actually requires judgment, discernment, and creativity. We're not just turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line. We're not just adding up columns of figures. And so what I tried to do there is say, listen, there's a, there's a, a certain poverty to relying on these if-then rewards, and there's another way to do things. There's a, there's a way to, do, to configure systems within companies, within other organizations built around autonomy, the sense of people getting better at something that matters, and, and some kind of sense of, of, of purpose. But the big problem, just to be clear, isn't necessarily money per se. But it's really the contingency. It's the if-thenness. Because when I if-then you, I'm trying to control you. And people don't do great work under conditions of control. When you try to control human beings, they either comply or they defy. But that's not – people don't do great work under conditions of compliance or defiance. That's a beautiful way of putting it. It's, it's beautiful. And a follow-up to that then is – so John and I are millennials, although almost not, um, but we, we do fall into that category. But our, and our parents used to be primarily concerned with safety, security, loyalty to a company. And I feel like companies back then thought it was okay to just pay them money. I, has this been a recent change or, or what has happened recently? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I tried to get at this question in this in this in my first book, Free Agent Nation, about, you know, what is the what is the, the, the kind of implicit exchange? What is the the social contract? And I think for a long time, the social contract of work was that the organization gave security and the individual gave loyalty. Okay, it was sort of a vertical relationship. The organization gives security down, individual gives loyalty up. And I, I, you know, that bargain is completely kaput. I mean, it's totally kaput. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't think you could you could go anywhere and find people who believe that that bargain exists now. Now, um, and I think the new bargain is actually a much more challenging bargain. And what it's done is it, it, it is that the organization gives opportunity and the individual gives talent. 
And that opportunity could be money. That op- it's a big part of it. The opportunity could be the chance to work with great people, do cool, interesting things. Um, but that's really the, you know, that's that's really the bargain. And I, I thought a lot about loyalty. And and there's this idea that loyalty doesn't exist anymore. But I actually think that loyalty has changed. That is, in some ways, the axis has shifted. It used to be this kind of horizontal, this vertical loyalty up and down. Now I think there's a lot of horizontal loyalty, loyalty to teams. Loyalty to colleagues, to professions, to, to ex-colleagues, uh, that it isn't this kind of vertical loyalty where the individual gives loyalty up in exchange for security. And, and I think that that's, um, that's a very challenging bargain for a lot of people. I don't know if every single person is, is, is ready for that. For some of us, that's a very liberating bargain. But for, for, for other people, it ends up raising a whole host of challenges. Do you think that the change, like you said, vertical versus horizontal and from uh, loyalty to you know, your superiors versus your team and things like that. And now people want to bring talent. Is that often because of, or is that all because of the technology age? Is it because the ability to do work and the way we do it has changed so much? Sure. I think that's a big part of it. I think the other thing is that, um, I mean, it's a complicated question. It's a really good question. Uh, you know, I think part of it is that organizations face such much more ferocious competitive pressures than ever before. Um, and so you look at any company anywhere, and I don't think you can make a bet that it is that that company is going to be around 10 years from now. I mean, you see this all over and over and over again. Look at, you know, look at RIM and the BlackBerry. RIM was on the top of the world like five or six years ago, and now it's struggling. You know, Nokia was on the top of the world 10 years ago, then it was at the bottom of the world. Now it's actually climbing back up. Look at a company like Dell. I mean, Dell was probably the Wall Street darling for mm-hmm. 15 years. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the, 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 the founder is taking it private because the market is, is beating on it and because it's, it's, pos- it's arguably a big portion of its business is a dying business. And so, you know, with those kinds of ferocious pressures, it's harder for organizations to, to maintain that kind of, to maintain that bargain. And so that's part of it. But also I think technology, as you say, has changed it too, because today it's pretty clear to me that, that organizations need talented people much more than uh, then talented people need organizations. So, you know, you guys can just set up shop in a garage and using, you know, the cloud and using broadband and using, uh, you know, a whole array of technologies that are more powerful than whole organizations had 20 years ago. You can you can do your own thing. So it's a whole, you know, it's a whole bunch of shifts. And, and I think that it's generally a good thing. The only thing that concerns me as a citizen is that, it's very clear that some people are being left out, that some people are being left behind. And that is wrong for moral reasons, but it's also very dangerous for economic reasons. What companies have you recently seen that have done a good job at, you know, drawing creativity out of people or doing, you know, that new type of bargain compared to the old vertical type? Yeah, I think there are a bunch of companies that are doing some really interesting things. Like I'm a big fan of this Australian company Atlassian which has, you know, does these things called FedEx days where people can spend a day working on whatever they want. Uh, they have gotten rid of uh, formal performance reviews because those things are absurd. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, they do, um, they are a company with, you know, over a hundred million dollars a year in sales, but they have no salespeople. And so, you know, that's, that's a very cool company. If you look at the tomato processing, the fruit, pro- mostly tomato processing company, Morningstar, really remarkable company that does, uh, essentially doesn't have bosses where uh, people don't have to, their budgets are approved by their peers, where 
Uh, there's a huge amount of autonomy on the, the actual floor, the production floor. And so there are a lot of companies out there that are doing some, you know, really different. I mean, if you look at, you know, Dropbox, for instance, has become one of the best places to work in Northern California because of the way that it does things. Uh, Facebook has done some very, very interesting things on the human resources front that, does, that don't get a lot of attention. So there are a lot of companies out there that are doing some really, really, really interesting things. They tend to be younger companies. They tend to be companies that have a, a little bit of founder DNA in them. But there are plenty of companies out there that are really taking a, a novel and very effective approach. I want to jump back real quick. When you mentioned RIM and uh, Nokia being you know, at the bottom now, Yeah. is that because, and Dell for that matter, is that because they... They looked at this in a non-creative way. I mean, when you look at Dell computers, they were just plain Jane plastic computers and they put a bunch of them out there. People were just, you know, that whole laptop boom was taking off. So they sold millions of them, but they never really innovated. They never really allowed their employees to create new things and they never tried to grow in an innovative fashion. Is that one of the things that you're seeing with these companies that you're saying? Well, okay? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part. That's partly. That's partly Dell's story. I mean, Dell was actually, in some ways, a very, very. I mean, in many ways, a very innovative, forward-looking company. I mean, Michael Dell saw from his dorm room in the University of Texas the idea that these computers are, were, were going to be everywhere, that right. they were going to become tools that everybody was going to use, and that by providing them for, for a relatively modest price, he would be doing the world a great service and making himself gazillions of dollars. Uh, Dell was very, very innovative when it came to certain kinds of processes, particularly supply chain and inventory processes. They essentially, I don't want to say invented, but they they helped perfect this idea of just-in-time inventory. But, you know, the world changed around them. And that's one of the things that's very difficult for companies. That is, they're making money off of something, but the world changes around them and they have a hard time getting rid of their legacy businesses, even because the legacy businesses don't just, just disappear overnight. They just kind of kind of sort of slow down, become less relevant. And this is a story we see all the time. It's partly Dell's story, although Dell is also in servers, which is, you know, keep helping to keep it alive. Right. Um, But, you know, you have you have a much greater migration now toward toward smartphones and tablets. So if you're selling if you're selling PCs, that's a less lucrative business. But you see it in other companies, too. You see it in Blockbuster. Blockbuster was making money renting videos in stores and they didn't see Netflix and they didn't see streaming and they didn't see mail and DVDs until it was too late. I mean, the, the, the quintessential example is Kodak. I mean, what's so amazing is Kodak invented the digital camera. Very <laughs> people realize that there was a dude at Kodak. He invented the digital camera. They had it. Wow. And they didn't do anything with it because their legacy business was making money and they didn't see the, you know, they didn't see the world changing around them. So that's real, you know, that's and I think what happens here, what's happening now is that 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 journey from innovator to also ran is really swift. I mean, RIM is a great example. I'm not I don't want to write off RIM altogether, but, you know, RIM arguably went from the top of the world to the bottom of the world in, in a decade. And, you know, the, the only reason I bring this up is because I watched the well, I didn't really watch, but I read about Tim Cook's speech to Goldman Sachs today. And one of the things that that struck me was he was basically telling these analysts that he doesn't care what they think about cannibalizing themselves. And he was saying, I'd rather have it be us coming out with new products and cannibalizing our own, our old ones, compared to Samsung or whoever else taking market share away from us. And I just I found it very interesting that he he sees it like that. 
where you know a lot of these companies they still no. they get stuck resting in their laurels and they they want to just keep I guess yeah well they're making money cash. that's the yeah. thing yep you no know, it's not like you know it, it, it you know it it isn't even like the the boat is taking on water it's like hey we're making money and it becomes it it becomes hard to do it I think Apple has done done a pretty good job of that I actually think that Reed Hastings at Netflix you know he made that kind of he made that pricing blunder basically irking his customers but ultimately he's trying to do that now yeah. i mean he could have still made a made a lot of money mailing out dvds but he was trying to essentially netflix his own business by moving more towards streaming and then even now getting into not only streaming other people's stuff but actually developing the content to stream himself so there are some companies that are nimble enough to do that but most aren't i mean most here's the thing most human beings aren't Sure. So you wrote Drive and it killed it, did great. And then you transitioned from how to motivate employees to how to sell, which actually seems of kind of like a smooth transition. Because when I think of sales and salesmen being one myself, like direct sales, everybody thinks about how do we get more? How do we motivate mm-hmm. them more? Was that the reason you went from Drive to your newest book to Sell as Human? A little bit. I mean, basically what it was was that, you know, so I wrote this book about the dangers of if-then rewards. And so people emailed me and said, okay, what about sales commissions? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's the thing that I was really the catalyst that took me into the world of sales. And so I was curious about that. Then I started hearing from companies out there, not a huge number, but enough to make it interesting, companies out there that had eliminated commissions for their sales force and then seen sales go up. That was kind of interesting to me. And I realized that, you know, in a decade and a half of writing about business, I don't think I'd written a single word about sales. And so, and I realized, hey, this is pretty interesting. I know that I've interviewed salespeople for various other kinds of things that I've done. And I found that, that, you know, to a person, they completely shatter the stereotype that most of us have about salespeople. I, you know, they end up, I thought they ended up being very thoughtful, very sophisticated, very highly skilled people. And, and so I said, well, let me find, try to find out a little bit more about sales. So you go to look at the books on sales, and most of them are garbage. And then, you know, you go to, um, you know, I do some work with various MBA programs, but you go to the MBA programs, and they don't teach sales. And so it struck me that this is a pretty important topic that was being neglected, and that it was actually really kind of interesting. And then the more I explored it, the more I realized that I, like many people, are selling all the time. Uh, selling not only in ways, you know, persuade, I mean, that's what I'm doing now. I'm basically selling the idea on the virtue of this book. And so, you know, we're selling all the time. We're trying to persuade, influence, convince other people. And so I just found it so interesting. And I thought there was kind of a void of good stuff out there on it that I said, let's give this a whirl. Yeah. And you know, and that's what I kind of love about this book. I mean, you present sales as moving people and, and that's what it is. I love how you kind of, when you think about everybody has to move somebody, it becomes much more communal than forceful. And I try to think of that. I mean, I try to think of the, the happy part of sales because it's something I have to do every day. And that's kind of the way you go is saying how no longer do you have to cram it down somebody's throat. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. that doesn't work. Just yeah. be human, interact and provide value. Well, I mean, you do it. I mean, that's a really I like your I like your um, I like your phrase about, you know, kind of um, communal, um, which is not a phrase we often hear in, in the world of sales. But that harkens back to 
you know, one of the people who I write about in Drive is a really amazing scholar named Ed Deasy, who's at the University of Rochester and one of the pioneers of a very different approach to motivation. And what he said, and it's, it's true for motivation, it's true for, for sales and moving people as well, is that what he said is that you ha- we have to get past this idea that motivation is something that one person does to another and, and, and understand that actually motivation is something that people do for themselves. And I think there's an analog to sales, too, that, that or persuasion, influence, convincing, moving, whatever. It's partly the search for common ground, and it's partly the search for how can I create a context where you can come up with your own autonomous, intrinsically motivated reasons for going in the direction that I want to go to. And so it isn't, again, it's, it's something that people do for themselves rather than something that one person does to another. And the funniest part is reading your book is one of those things when you're like, God, I knew that, but Mm-mm. I didn't know that. I mean, I just thought I did, right? Like the whole thing about how it's not buyer beware anymore. It's almost seller beware. Totally. Yeah. And, and and when you talk about car sales, I'm like, I think of the last three cars I bought, I literally knew more than the car salesman, hands down. So uh, it doesn't surprise me. That's that. But nobody thinks of that anymore. I mean, your book, I feel like was one of the first ones to highlight that. That's crazy to me. Well, thanks, thanks. I'm <laughs> glad that uh, I'm glad that others were so so slow on the on the draw. <laughs> yeah, honestly. So, I did want to ask you. You followed around Norman Hall, the, yeah. the Fuller Brush salesman. Yeah. And I connected with him on such a great level as a salesman because he still says just getting myself out of the house and facing yeah. people is the stiffest challenge, yeah. which is great to hear. I want all salesmen to know that. Even the longest, best salesmen in the world still struggle with what you call the ocean of rejection. Could well, it's actually what Norman about? calls the ocean of rejection. Okay, that's Norman's line. I wish I wish I had come up with that. It's a freaking <laughs> great line. Uh, but 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 that's what Norman said. Norman said, you know, what every you know every day I face an ocean of rejection, and that's one reason that I that I decided to write about this concept, or, or at least call it this, this concept of buoyancy, which is how do you stay afloat on that ocean of rejection. And there's some interesting evidence in the social science uh, about that. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, one, I think it's partly human nature that many of us believe that other people have it easier. And it's just not the case. So here's this guy who's been out for 40 years doing this. And 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 he has to, like, face every morning going out and doing this thing. It's true for me. I mean, people might people might look at me and say, oh, wow, this dude has written five books. Writing must be really easy. It's freaking not. You know, every single day. No, I mean it. Every single day I face that blinking cursor saying, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, and it's the same thing as someone writing their, you know, it's similar thing, at least as someone writing their first book or someone just starting out. Every day is, you know, every day is a little bit of a struggle. Every day is a challenge. And, and I think that it's in some ways reassuring to us to hear that from other people, to know that other people are facing these kinds of challenges too. Being able to stay buoyant is being one of the things that you want to teach salespeople. What's another thing that you find to be really important, another tool for being a salesman? And then kind of, I guess, follow up on that where you discuss how extroverts aren't you know, necessarily the best yeah. salesmen. Can you explain that as well? Yeah, too? well, let, let me try to twin the two. I mean, one of the most important Perfect. qualities is this quality that I call attunement. And that, 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 that that's really what the literature calls perspective taking. Can you take another person's perspective? And so that ends up being hugely important, not surprisingly, in moving people, which is can you see the world from the other person's perspective? Can you get out of the anchor of your own position 
and understand the other person's interests, understand where the other person is coming from. That's, that's, that's huge. And it's, and it's actually something a little different from empathy. It's not only understanding their feelings that that matters, but it's really understanding the thoughts, understanding their, their interests. And so, uh, perspective taking attunement is a really powerful, powerful uh, skill that all of us need to get better at. In 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 it, it makes us more effective and makes us, I think, at some level, better people. And an aspect of attunement, a big aspect of attunement, is listening. One of the things that I discovered in working on this book, it just occurred to me in, in writing the book, is that we go to school, they teach us how to read, they teach us how to write, but nobody ever teaches us how to listen. And as if we're like, we know how to listen and we don't. I mean, we, we can hear because we have ears connected to a brain, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can listen. And listening ends up being one of the reasons, just to segue to your other point, ends up being one of the reasons why one of the explanations for this myth of the extroverted sales star, which Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania has discovered, uh, he did some really interesting research where he basically you know, gave some salespeople this kind of standard assessment that locates them on a range of introversion and extroversion, measures their sales over the next three months. And what he finds is that the strong introverts, not surprisingly, were not very good salespeople. Uh, they didn't like to pick up the phone. They didn't like to assert themselves. Okay, that's no big surprise. But the bigger surprise was that the strong extroverts, the people whom we think are naturals, the glad-handing, back-slapping, grinning, what can I do to put you in a Buick this afternoon kind of guys, uh, they were only a little bit better than those people cowering in the corner. And the reason is that they weren't very well attuned. That is, they talked too much. They came on too strong. They weren't good enough listeners. They they didn't know when to hold back. They only knew when to push. And so – it turns out, according to Adam Grant's research, that the very best salespeople are not strong extroverts or strong introverts, but people who are ambiverts. That is, people in the middle of the introversion-extroversion spectrum, people who are a little bit introverted, a little bit extroverted, people who can kind of you know, shift a little bit back and forth, people who have a little bit wider repertoire. The people who are very strongly one way or another are just not very good at it. The people who are in the middle are actually much more adept at it because they're they're more attuned. And I think what's hardening to all of us in this research that Adam Grant did is that most of us are ambiverts. I mean, if you look at the distribution in the population, you know, a few of us are very strong introverts, a few of us are very strong extroverts, but most of us are ambiverts. Sometimes I feel like that seems almost self-serving, right? Like most people are ambiverts and most people are therefore good salesmen. Did that ever cross your mind and you're like, hmm, this might seem too easy? No, I don't think that it's easy. But what it means is that uh, what it means is that it goes to this idea that, oh, I'm just not good at that. You know, that I have that we have this mythology out there that you have to be a certain way to be effective in sales. And it's a certain way that, that, that many people, particularly someone like me, who is on the sort of the introverted side of the spectrum, find a little distasteful that you got to be a glad hander, that you got to be a smiley guy, that you got to be you know, the, the up all the time, slapping people on the backs, you know, laughing too loud at jokes kind of guy to do this. And it's just not true. You know, and, and I do want to highlight that for everyone because I agree with you. Even I'm a personable guy and everything, but I don't like tr even trying to come across as a hard salesman. And I think I used to, you know, and it just felt fake. And your book kind of said it's okay to not be that guy. It's beneficial. You're better off not being that guy if you're not that guy, right. you know, I mean, if you are that guy, I mean, God bless you. Right. I think you have to learn some listening skills, right. but you know, I don't, you know, I don't want someone who's more ambiverted to, to think they have to be a certain way when it's not true to who they are as a human being, but when also it actually impairs their effectiveness rather than enhances it. And I think that's the greatest thing that somebody can get from your book. And that's why I totally recommend anyone who 
you know, feels like in any way they move people to check that out. And you also give some tools in there. I know you have somewhere on your website where people can go and find out where they fall on the scale. And yeah. you talk about different ways. Actually, that's a good question. What is one way that you found somebody might uh, move themselves to be a better salesman? Just real quick. I'll, I'll give you an interesting one. One of them is to actually be much more conscious of what people are doing physically, what other people are doing physically. So how are they standing? How are they? What kind of gestures are they using? Uh, what are they doing verbally? What kind of expressions are they using? And the more that you become conscious of you know, again, posture and facial expressions and gestures and word choice. The more you become conscious of that, the more you will begin to actually subtly reflect that. And that's going to allow you to see people's perspective much more clearly. So that's one thing that's been very helpful to me as someone who maybe over intellectualized some of these encounters, thinking that it's all, you know, that, that, and that what I was doing is I was missing out on a huge channel of information, the channel of information in facial expressions, gestures, posture, and overall affect. And the more you're conscious of that, the more you say, oh, wait a second, this guy has his arms crossed. I wonder what he's feeling. And I mean, you don't do this consciously, but you might cross your arms and say, oh, okay, so he's a little bit uptight. He's like a little bit stressed out. And it allows you to see things from that person's perspective much more acutely. Sure. No, that's a great point. And I know we've uh, taken up a little too much of your time, but, and this is kind of a grand question that falls into our podcast. We have you on, like you said, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. You didn't become a writer till you were in your early 30s. And you've done all this studying of motivation, the right brainers and, and emotional intelligence. I wanted to ask you if you had advice for people who are trying to find their path, trying to find their passion, trying to find their motivation, if you had kind of a nugget you've learned along the way. I know it's deep. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's deep, but I, I, got, I got lots of nuggets. Okay, good. Uh, I'm all about nuggets. <laughs> um, what, um, I think one of them is, is to look what you do, is to watch what you do. Uh, watch what you, like, look carefully. What do you do in your spare time? What do you do when nobody's watching? Uh, what do you do for free? I think that ends up being very revealing to people. And that's one of the things that I learned in, in my life is that in the course of doing these other things, I was always writing stuff on the side. Uh, I never thought of myself as a writer. It was never central to what I was doing, but it was this kind of looking back. It was this kind of constant presence in my life. And um, and it was trying to tell me something. So I think, look at what you do. Um, the other thing is that, you know, I just I have to say, as as hacking as it might sound, there are just massive returns to doggedness and, and working hard. One of the things that I found is that a lot of people just don't show up. Uh, they don't do the work. And you have to do the work. You have to, you know, if you want to be a great musician, you have to show up every day and practice really hard. If you want to be a great uh, hitter in baseball, you got to go to the batting cage every day and practice hitting. You want to be a great writer, you got to sit down at the computer, confront that demonic blinking cursor, (laughs) and write. And as simple as it sounds, you got to show up and you got to do the work. And if you sit around waiting to be inspired, um, you're going to have a long wait. Right. No, I love that. I love that. That's a great place to end it. Dan, I did want to say, I mean, as we said, all your books are incredible. Where can people go to learn more about you? Where do you want our listeners to check you out? Your website's fantastic, by the way, if you could tell them where that is. Hey, thanks. Uh, they can go to my website, danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. And, and for the books, go to your favorite bookseller, online, offline, amazon.com, your local Barnes & Noble, bn.com, your outstanding local independent bookseller. Check around. All right, great. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Amazing books, and we'll look forward to your next one. All right, thanks, you guys. That was fun. All right, Dan, have a good night. 
Okay, see ya. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I don't know about you, what you guys think, but isn't Dan Pink awesome? I, I thought he was fantastic. And you know what the coolest part is? Our guest next week is just as amazing. I'm, I'm pumped about that one as well. I hope you guys can make it back uh, same time next week for another edition of Smart Fuel Podcast. Yeah, and if you guys are new listeners to the show, thanks for checking us out. And we have an entire archive of shows that you can get over on iTunes. Download all kinds of past episodes. We've got great guests on there. Brene Brown, Tony Shea. I mean, it's just, it's a long list. While you're over there, go ahead and uh, rate and comment as well. You know, thanks again for checking us out. Subscribe on iTunes. We appreciate you. Catch you next week. Bye.